will be reading in a moment in Philippians chapter 4. So if you want to go ahead and turn there. In your pew Bibles, that will be page 982. So this, this passage references contentment, and you know, we think about uh, the nature of contentment. You know, it, first thing that came to my mind was um, the quote from uh, Charles Dickens in, uh, all, oh, sorry, it's in David Copperfield, sorry. It's um, annual income, 20 pounds, annual expenditures, 19 and 6 result happiness. Annual income, 20 pounds. Annual expenditures, 20 pounds. Ought and six result misery. So what he's saying is that if your expenses are just a little above what you make, you'll be miserable. And if they're just a little below what you make, you will have happiness. With a little leftover, there's enough for our needs. And You know, when there is a deficit, that leads to fear, anxiety, sorrow. And we consider more than finance. We live life on the margins in some areas more than we realize. And though this is a financial example, the same can be said with our contentment and general well-being. With a little bit of excess, we're happy. And with a deficit, we're miserable. And we, ourselves, are the ones setting the bar of expectation there. And as our capacity goes up, so do our expectations. We adapt to our new situation. Researchers have shown that the excitement of a new purchase goes away after you've purchased the thing, right? You had all this anticipation, and then you bought it, and then it just becomes part of your collection. It becomes your new normal, And you no longer have that joy and anticipation that happiness doesn't last. And you've probably seen this in the workplace. When people are discontent, maybe their expectations or their assessment of their own uh, value that they bring is, is higher than what others' assessment is. And you could probably see this in family life, in in the church, and in other realms, right? Our reality compared to our expectation drives our contentment. And that's why people say that finances are a cause of marital strife for that very reason. If the expectation is set too high, our resources too low, then it will be a cause of strife. And yet, in the passage this week, that doesn't seem to have anything to do with Paul's frame of reference as he uses the word content. Right. Paul breaks this rule. So sometimes in life there may be things that through observation we see are just common. Right? Everybody knows this. We, we see this in, in our, you know, as you go through life. You see it over and over again. You think, oh, that's the way things work. And here we have this example where Paul breaks the rule. So in Philippians 4, Paul addresses need in the midst of trials. And for Paul, his life situation is set in the context of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, Paul's particular context was being imprisoned for Jesus Christ. But union with Christ changes Paul's perspective on life. 
and his situations. And in light of that new life in Christ, abundance and trials are no longer the measure of contentment. So let's read from Philippians chapter 4, starting in verse 10, from God's Word. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. All right, so some context. So if you read through the letter to the Philippians, it teaches us that the gospel of Christ, when applied in our lives, leads to a fundamental reorientation to the way we see life. It leads to humility, and it leads to rejoicing, even in the midst of unfavorable circumstances. So read through the whole letter. Paul is in prison. Many people would despair, but despair doesn't enter into the discussion Instead, the gospel of Christ leads to a firm hope, rejoicing, and contentment for Paul. Because for the Christian, joy and expectation are fixed upon Christ and the coming kingdom. So in contrast, right, for the world, these virtues of humility and rejoicing and contentment, they may be associated with emotional maturity, a favorable life circumstance, or self-discipline, but for the Christian, humility, rejoicing, contentment are implications of the gospel, right? The gospel applied in life. And so in Philippians 4, this week's passage, we see some specific applications of the gospel in Paul's life. We see, first, Paul rejoices in partnership in the gospel with the Philippians. We're also going to see how Paul experiences contentment in light of the gospel, regardless of his life circumstances, whether good or bad. And that Paul finds strength through the gospel to endure hardship. So Christians talk about a changed life, and usually we do that in the context of sin, right? The, the, the idea that uh, sin has entered into our lives, and you, know, you come to Christ, and that's the the central issue that's being dealt with. And it is the central issue, but a changed life has a broader context than that, a broader application, right? Paul's union with Christ is applied in every area of his life, including his disposition. And these are, after all, fruits of the Spirit that we see in his life. And these fruits are virtues that are uncommon in this world. They're things that you don't see every day in the way people naturally respond to situations. And so, when we find those who are of like mind and those who have been changed by the work of the Holy Spirit and who have a common purpose with us, we rejoice with them, sharing this common experience of union with Christ. And that's what Paul does. He rejoices in partnership for the gospel with the Philippians. So let's go back and look at verse 10. 
I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. So Paul is thankful for their partnership in the gospel. Right? He greatly rejoices in Christ, thankful for them. And God's people are united in Christ, and that was a cause of rejoicing. And he doesn't rejoice because his needs are met. They were already met. He could endure with very little. But no, he rejoices because of the care and concern offered by God's people. And ultimately, Paul is thankful for them. They were of one mind. They had the same hope. And that common hope in Christ was an encouragement and a cause of rejoicing for Paul. Much earlier, Paul had written to the Thessalonians and spoke to them this way. In 1 Thessalonians 2.19, For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. So back there, when Paul thought of his reward for his service to Christ... He pointed to God's people. They were his reward. And here in Philippians, and again, he rejoices in God's people, thankful for them and their concern for him. So the word concern or care appears 10 times in the letter to the Philippians. And it could mean a kind of mindfulness, having them in mind or Paul in mind, but its use in this context, it's really relational. Because Paul recognizes they're concerned for his welfare. They have his welfare in mind. And here their concern continues, even when they lacked opportunity to show it for a time. And so partnership is in the context of a common experience of new life in Christ. Changed lives. And so there's a strong background in Philippians that brings us to this point. I'm going to be, warn, I'll warn you up front, I've, I do plan on reading a lot of scripture, especially from Philippians, to show the context here. And I want to show the connected thoughts that run through the letter. So early on in Philippians, Paul talks about this pattern of life in Christ, and ultimately he's pointing towards what new life looks like that is a natural implication of the work of God in our lives. So, starting in Philippians 1 and verse 27, he says, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you, that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. And Paul points to Christ's example of humility, and then extends that to our mind and affections. Go over to chapter 2, verse 1. So, if there's any encouragement in Christ any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. So chapter 2 goes on in extended detail on Christ and his example for us. And Paul talks about how Christ humbled himself, and this leads to our own humility and rejoicing. In Philippians 2.14, do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless, innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run or labor in vain, even as I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, 
I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. So Paul is saying that given the faith that they share together, he's calling them to follow him in virtue as he follows Christ. And this unity in the gospel extends to our hope, our life, our character, our outlook, and our fellowship with one another. And so Paul gives examples to imitate. And he starts with Christ. Most of chapter 2 is taken up with that example of Christ and his sacrifice for us. And then he says to imitate him, himself, Paul. And he points them to Timothy and then to Epaphroditus. The point is to look at their pattern of life and to follow their example with the ultimate example being Christ. So we we come over to Philippians chapter 3 and verse 17. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. And then immediately preceding this week's passage in Philippians 4, starting in verse 8, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. So, We have changed lives, the imitation of Christ, and the expression of Christian partnership in the gospel. So the word partnership in Philippians is the same word often translated fellowship or koinonia. It's the partnership, it's, it's not a partnership of convenience. Rather, it's because they walk together and they share the same mind. And so we see this partnership in in both the opening and closing of the letter. It's sort of inferred in the passage we're reading now, but uh, we see explicitly called out in the opening and the closing. Philippians 1, starting in verse 4, always in every prayer of mine with you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers with me of the grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. So their partnership is founded in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then we have this passage immediately after this week's passage, starting in uh, 4.15. And you, Philippians, yourselves know that In the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except only you. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs. And again, not that I seek the gift, for I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received payment in full and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God, And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. And so they showed their care and concern for Paul in his ministry and in that he was grateful for them. Right? And I think we heard some of that sentiment in the testimonies this morning. And that was an encouragement. And so Paul had that kind of fellowship with them where he had this mutual encouragement with him 
with them, and that was founded in their common experience of the gospel of Christ that they shared together, right? So this like-mindedness, gospel unity, is lived out, and there's a bond between believers because of our common experience in Christ. And they are concerned about his welfare, and for Paul, their fellowship with one another is what is encouraging, not the physical need being met. He's thankful. He's thankful for them. He's thankful for what they provided, not for their things, not for their influence, but for their partnership in the gospel. And this same gospel is where Paul finds contentment. Paul experiences contentment in light of the gospel, regardless of his circumstances, whether good or bad. So going back to verse 11. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content, for I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. So Paul clarified that he's not fishing for gifts. Rather, he's recognizing their care for him. And so he explains what contentment looks like for the Christian. It comes from our union with Christ through the gospel, connected with our humility and trust in the Lord. Right? So that's kind of the, the thrust of where he's been building to in the letter so far, showing our, our identification with, with Christ in both death and resurrection. And we, uh, in chapter 2, is this uh, Christ hymn and this um, you know, glorious text talking about what Christ has done on our behalf. So we identify with his sacrifice and we identify with his resurrection. And it's in that that we find contentment connected with Christ. But it's also learned. Because he says he's learned contentment. And so Paul had learned in whatever situation to be content. It's part of our growth in Christ-likeness, as we become conformed to the image of Christ, as our, our thoughts and intentions grow into alignment with the will of God in our lives. And so it's about learning to trust God for his provision. It's learning not to be tossed around emotionally by every circumstance. It's learning not to fear man. It's learning to align our ambition with what is valued by our Lord. And this contentment is present regardless of the circumstances. It's fixed. It's fixed in Christ. And so it's present with little and with plenty. It's found in favorable circumstances and in a bitter providence in our lives. And this, this is what gospel humility lived out looks like. Right? It's a fruit of the Spirit. It's, it's a reflection of our hope in Christ rather than our hearts being dominated by our former desires. You can see how that, the, the way I described commitment at the opening, right? It's, it's like if your desires are met, then you'll be content, right? It's, it's a contentment that's based in those desires versus the contentment that we see here is based in Christ, right? And, so, and if that's learned, where are we going to learn this? Now, specifically, Paul points to Christ's example. Right? He spends a lot of time 
in Philippians pointing to the example of Christ. And he also points to the example of godly saints, right? So chapter 2 focuses on Christ's example for us. And then that example is carried through Paul and Timothy and others, and it continues to this day. And we should take advantage of God's provision in our lives through his people, and through the godly examples that God has put before us. You know, you can learn from books. And there's something about learning from books that's useful. But character is really learned life on life as you see examples in your life of those around you. Some think of discipleship as a program or they, uh, they like a name or a system behind it. But programs are not a secret sauce, right? They're, they're only good as far as they enable us to make real connections with people so that we get that real organic growth in our life of what we see of what people around us and how they're responding to situations, how they're responding to trials, and how they're trusting and learning to trust in Christ. And so you can benefit from those other things, but don't overlook the church, the body of Christ, and Christ-likeness is learned through those life-on-life experiences. Right? God's grace is shown to us through his people. And those testimonies of Thanksgiving this morning are just examples, a reminder to us of that. So Christ Church will give you examples of those who are turning from those desires towards the fruits of the Spirit. God's grace is revealed to us every day in the lives of his people. And we rejoice in our common partnership in the gospel as we see people learn to follow and trust in our Lord. And so Paul addresses the contrast between those with this humble disposition and those who are dominated by the deeds of the flesh in 1 Timothy. And there, uh, discontentment caused by quarrels or controversy is juxtaposed against contentment found in the life of a Christian. So 1 Timothy chapter 6, starting in verse 2, it says, Teach and urge these things. If anyone teaches a different doctrine... It does not agree with sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness. He is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He is an unhealthy, he has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words, which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. But godliness with contentment is great gain. Imagining that godliness is a means of gain, but godliness with contentment is great gain. Right? For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world, but if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, and into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. So Paul deals with two situations here. Those who bring quarrels over doctrine and those who seek to be rich. In either case, the matter is one of the heart. And the heart that is discontent will lead to both quarrels and greed. But the Christian whose worth is found in Christ finds contentment in basic needs being met. And notice how contentment and godliness are closely related. 
but godliness with contentment is great gain. And together they express Christian maturity. The, the great gain is not in worldly possessions or victory in theological battles. Right? Godliness without contentment is no gain at all. It's a false godliness. Right? Focus on this outward victory without inward change. Paul says that those who quarrel imagine that godliness is a means of gain. Godliness with contentment is great gain. The difference is whether our outward appearance of godliness is united with inward change in our lives. This outward appearance of of godliness versus inward fruit of the Spirit. Or is that outward appearance of godliness met with quarrels, envy, and slander? What does discontentment look like? It's quarrelsome. It's openly disobedient. It involves murmuring, harboring negative assumptions about other people, distrust, gossip. It focuses on externals while giving this impression of godliness. And our society today is broken. Some mask their discontent with the appearance of godliness to make discontent look beautiful, honorable, virtuous, even holy. But that's an empty shell. Right, a, a culture that, that gives a veneer of godliness is deadly to the soul. Right, we seek inward change that comes from the heart. You know, others take pride in their discontentment. Right, they've they've thrown off. They, they've seen what a false shell looks like, so they're going to throw off the false shell and be proud of their discontent. And so they justify it. They want solidarity with others who will justify them. So they own it, and they call it good, and they seek self-justification rather than humility in Christ. And they want the label, sometimes, of Christianity while, without being conformed in Christ-likeness. And sometimes this takes forms of deconstruction or syncretism. There, there's lots of different forms of that. Others seek just false comforts in everyday life. Right, their discontent is either pushed aside for a time, drowned in other concerns. Their murmurs, quiet quitting, right, moving on from place to place without resolving conflict, escaping reality through any means possible, whether drowning sorrows in a substance or just binging streamed TV shows or staying up late playing video games. Right? They look to false comforts to provide contentment. Right? They may convince themselves that they're satisfied, but earthly amusements, you know, earthly amusements are not evil. Right? That's not the point. It's that that's not where you're going to find ultimate contentment. Right? It's a distraction. It's counterproductive if that's where you think you're going to find contentment. Sometimes we refer to this as consumerism or escapism. But in any case, so I've given three different ways, you know, a false veneer, a, a throwing off of, of godliness, or just a, a drowning in whatever might give you an a oppression of contentment for a time. But godliness 
as a means of gain is the form without the inward change. It's deadly to the soul. So are you content? Have you learned contentment? As Paul says, that he's learned contentment. It's a calmness of the soul that only comes through trust in God's provision in your life. This godliness only comes through abiding in Christ. And so, do you live in discontentment in your life? Whether in quarrels or false comforts, it's not a matter of mindless submission or just telling you to give up on aspiring to great things. Inner contentment does not mean being weak or of no good to the world. Quite the opposite. Inner contentment gives strength to do what honors the Lord. So it gave Paul strength to endure hardship, but it's united with Christ-like character, humility, and trust. So contentment requires humility and trust in our lives. Jeremiah Burroughs, in his work, The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment, defines it this way. Christian contentment is that sweet, inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit which freely submits to and delights in God's wise and fatherly disposal in every condition. Go ahead and read that again, because there's a lot of pieces. It's one of those long Puritan sentences, right? All right. Christian contentment is that sweet, inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit which freely submits to and delights in God's wise, fatherly disposal in every condition. So he goes on to give a number of contrasts to contentment and strength found in the Lord. So he discusses murmuring, anxiety, an unstable and unsettled spirit. These things are a restlessness that shows a heart that resists submission to the Lord. And the answer is a heart that is humble and trusts. So a heart that takes pleasure in God and which rejoices in the Lord's provision. So I hope you're starting to see that these, these three pieces this week of, of partnership in the gospel and contentment and, and finding strength in the Lord, they're actually kind of all, they fold back in upon themselves. They're all related to one another. So I agree with him that the, a frame of, it is a frame of spirit, and it is delighting in God's fatherly disposal. In other words, it's tied to humility before God, right? And we trust in God's providence in our lives. So the, the word choice for contentment here is interesting. Uh, some commentators point out that uh, it's a word that was borrowed from the Stoics, kind of a key word in their literature from the first century. They had a concept of self-sufficiency and being content in one situation. But for the Stoics, that meant to develop a force of will that calmed the inward turmoil and enforced peace in our hearts. It's about developing a character to triumph over your emotions, your fear, and your uncertainty. So some commentators will add that in ancient philosophy, the idea of contentment is a basis for true friendship. And that's certainly something that the, the Stoics thought um, and that's a, that basically the idea is that a true friend can be freed to be a true friend, not just take advantage of one another, if they had this sort of true contentment. And so they're free to express friendship in a genuine way. And so the idea that Paul 
may be leveraging the concept here with some key terms is what people are pointing out. Well, maybe, maybe that's the case. Maybe there's a first century cultural thing going on here. But even if it is, Paul's understanding of contentment is distinctively Christian. Right? So, you know, Paul may be engaging this concept, but um, you know, Paul's hope is firmly fixed in Christ. And he makes that clear in the text. And so their friendship is bound up in their common profession of faith. And that's definitely the stress that we see in Philippians, going back to uh, the beginning of the book. So for Paul, gospel unity and gospel contentment come from the same source, being found in Christ. Now, Commentator Walter Hansen put it this way, contrary to the philosophy of the Stoics, Paul did not seek to live by reason in order to be anesthetized to physical and emotional pain. He freely relates his tears and his great joy. He was passionately involved in pouring out his life as a sacrifice for others. As a servant of Christ Jesus, Paul's contentment in any and every situation flows out of his life in Christ. So, Paul is not talking about an independent self-sufficiency. Rather, he trusts the Lord that his needs will be met. In 4.19, he says, And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. So Paul has learned the secret of contentment, being found complete in Christ. And that's expressed in humility before our Lord and trust in his provision. And so for Paul, he was able to live with little, and that would have been humbling. And the Philippians provided gifts, and that provided abundance. In 4.18, it says, For I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. Paul looked at Christ's example of humility and endeavored to imitate him, and he rejoiced in God's provision through the partnership with his people in unity in the gospel. And in all things, Paul gave thanks to Christ. And that's where he finds strength to endure in hardship. Right. So going back to verse 12, I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger abundance and need. I could do all things through Christ who strengthens me. There's a good old Sunday school verse for you. I could do all things through Christ who strengthens me. All right, so now we're going to look at this in the context of the passage. Right? Um, what does all things mean? So brought low and abounding. For, for many to be brought low is humiliating. Right? We, we've already seen that how that's not how Paul learned humility, right? Being brought low may be a trial, but he can endure it through Christ, right? To abound, to have plenty, Paul can equally live in abundance while depending upon God's provision. And Paul sees virtue in both estates, being brought low and living with abundance with Christ as his example. So going back to uh, Philippians 2, verse 8, in being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So there's just a snippet of Paul reflecting on Christ. So Christ himself hum- humbled himself, and Paul sought to live in imitation of Christ. And he said that 
He had reason for confidence in the flesh, but whatever he gained, he counted as loss for Christ. That's in chapter 3. And Paul had godliness. He had reason for confidence in the flesh, but godliness was united with Christ-likeness in him. Why? Because the gospel was bearing fruit in his life. And so in Philippians 3.10, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings and become like him in his death, that I may by any means possible attain to the resurrection from the dead. So Paul identified with Christ both in death and resurrection, and therefore he could do all things through Christ who strengthened him. He trusts his Lord. So, strength is gospel trust lived out. And we need to reconcile the set of statements there, right? First, he's content to live with less in humility. And second, he states that he has plenty. Okay, so this is something people have tried to reconcile reading through the text. Some stress that Paul's frame of reference for plenty is modest. So he just doesn't have high expectations. Others would spiritualize plenty to say that, oh, it's, it's not talking about material wealth. It's talking about spiritual, you know, blessing. And yet he says he's content whether fed or hungry, with much or with little. So I think Paul is talking about actual provision in his life. The amount of material wealth is not his measure. He was content even when hungry, even when suffering. That's something difficult for us to connect with, isn't it? Because some people in our society have endured hunger. Many of us have not endured real hunger. And how long has it been since you've really felt the pain of hunger? Amassing, guarding, protecting wealth, that wasn't his concern. He was not seeking abundance for his own gain. But he trusted the Lord, and that freed him to rejoice in what God supplied. But even that rejoicing points back to the partnership that he has with the other believers. And so Paul being well-fed is a testimony to God's provision through the church for him. And it's a provision for his everyday needs. So when Paul says he can do all things, what does he mean? It's a provision for ordinary life. Right. What was he claiming? He wasn't a, a superhero. He didn't possess attributes of great strength, power, influence, or knowledge. Rather, Paul is considering what victory looks like for the Christian. He can do, endure hardship, and he can rejoice in what is supplied. All things is a reference to the ordinary, not to the extraordinary. Now, provision of ordinary things may be extraordinary. But all things references, in some sense, the mundane, the painful, the highs, and the lows in his life. And he's strengthened to endure them all because his frame of reference is a believer in Christ. Right? Knowing union with Christ, knowing the promises of God, he doesn't lose heart. Rather, he relies on God's provision and rejoices that that provision is manifested through the church for him. For the Christian, there's a source of contentment. It's found in Christ. Philippians 3.10, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings. It's not health, wealth, and prosperity. Many only want to identify with abundance and not be brought low. We may get angry or depressed when things don't work out for us. 
That's very natural, and it happens to everyone. And I would propose that you are making, if uh, you're making those things an idol in your life, right, that, uh, that it's going to be tough when they're ripped away from you. Yeah. But Paul says in Philippians 4, verse 12, I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound in any and every circumstance. I have lived, uh, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger and abundance and need. I could do all things through Christ who strengthens me, through him who strengthens me. So some philosophies encourage a level of detachment, right? Either through force of will or imagining the world as just an illusion. The pain's not really there. And therefore, through a level of mystical detachment, you're able to endure suffering. Whether inner strength, you know, as espoused by Stoicism or detachment that you see in, in Buddhism, you know, the, the Stoics demand a force of character. The Buddhists expect this disengagement from reality. But no, Paul shows us how to live real life in a real world depending upon Christ. And so Paul's strength, pointing to Christ, is grounded in reality. Right? We, we see this in, in Scripture. Um, you know, the Old Testament in Psalm 127, unless the Lord builds a house... Those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over a city, the watchmen stay awake in vain. Unless it is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. Right? There, there's a, uh, an emphasis on trusting in the provision of the Lord there. And for the believer, we live in the world as it is, but we know the greater story. We find joy in seeing our purpose connected with that greater story in Christ. But this is an escapism. Rather, it's a virtue grounded in what is real. In Philippians 2.24, he says, I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. Right? His trust in the Lord for the provision in his life that he would be able to come to see them. He looks forward to being with Christ, yet he's also willing to remain in the world for them. You know, for me to live as Christ and to die as gain. So having found his contentment in Christ, Paul has a frame of spirit that trusts in the Lord's fatherly disposal, and that's where he finds strength. So if you do not have this hope, if you have not trusted in Christ, you're not going to get there by applying it to the surface as a paint job. If you do not know what it is to hope in Christ, then I'd urge you to turn to Christ, to trust Him for provision in your life. And to trust Him as your only hope in life and death for salvation. And you won't get this kind of hope by just looking the part. We often talk about how our union with Christ impacts our lives. And it doesn't get much more rubber meets the road than this, right? The gospel of Christ leads to a firm hope and rejoicing and contentment. And so Paul finds his joy in the Lord. He finds strength in Christ. And his reference point is not earthly power. It's not abundance. So, for y'all, may, may the gospel applied in your life be relational, you know, a partnership, connected with the broader community of the church and God's provision through them. It's where we find partnership as you participate in Christ's church 
May you see the fruit of the Spirit in their lives, and may you find partnership with them in the gospel. And may the gospel be applied in your life in a way that's devotional, centered upon Christ and his work. And that's where we find contentment. As you consider Christ and his example of humility, may you learn contentment. And may the gospel applied in your life be experiential, real. It's not just a disembodied concept or an imperative that requires force of will. But as you pray and trust the Father, may you find strength to endure all things, trusting in his provision. So, consider how you can do all things through Christ who strengthens you. It's strength to live life according to God's kingdom priorities. In sickness and health, poverty and wealth, grounded in reality. Centered upon Christ and his work. In fellowship with his people. With trust in God's provision. And that's where you'll find contentment. Let's pray. Father, thank you for how you have provided for us. So Lord, help us to trust you. Even when it's hard. Even when we fear. Lord, help us to build a a habit of trust in our lives and in our prayer before you and to know that our only hope in life and death is to be united with Christ, our Savior. To find sustenance for life through him and to find redemption and restoration with you. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen.